Hi, this is Andy Mangles, Star Trek author, and you're listening to The Captain's Table. Welcome to The Captain's Table. Captain's Table, where we have intimate chats with those who have shaped Star Trek in words. I'm Rosalind, and with me as always is my co-host, Michael. Hi, Michael. Hi, Ros. So, Michael, you recently spoke with the author Andy Mangles. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't able, able to make it to that interview, but um, how did it go? Oh, it went really, really well. First of all, I have to thank Andy for his time, because originally we were just going to record for an hour. As the listeners will find out on the interview... Andy doesn't give short answers, which is great for us, um, but it wasn't great for time. So the, the interview actually lasted for about two hours. So it was really, really good and really in-depth. And we covered so many subjects from TAS to Enterprise to Titan to Filmation to JJ and the JJ verse. So we just covered so much, but it was brilliant. And again, I really have to thank Andy for his time. Fantastic. So for those of the listeners who um, maybe aren't as familiar with Andy Mangles, Andy's an American science fiction author who's written novels, comics and magazine articles and has produced DVD collections mostly focusing on media in popular culture. He's an openly gay man and has been a long-time advocate for greater visibility of gay and lesbian characters in various media, especially in comics, including the coordination and modernization of the annual Gays in Comics panel for Comic-Con International since it began in 1988. He's the founder of an annual Women of Wonder Day event, which raises money for domestic violence shelters and related programs. As of 2011, he has had books on the USA Today best-selling books list three times so a really accomplished guy all around it sounds like oh trek is just the beginning for for what andy's done he's worked on star wars he's worked on on other projects and i don't want to give too much away but he really surprised me because he's actually an actor as well and we're going to hear a story where he was on a set and it's just so funny what happened we were in stitches when he was telling me that story so yeah the guy is just so accomplished Excellent. Well, without further ado then, I think that we should move on to the interview. This week, I'm really pleased to welcome to the captain's table, Star Trek author, Andy Mangles. Hi, Andy. Hi, Mike. How are you today? I'm really good. Thank you so much for your time this evening. I know it's it's been a while for us organising our schedules and everything, but I really appreciate your time this evening. Well, it's great to that we have the technology where we can kind of talk across the pond like this. It's uh, when Star Trek was on the air, this kind of thing was was uh, you know something in the future that we would have video phones and so forth. Yeah. And it's kind of now uh, I I can talk to you. It's midday for me and evening for you, and but you're halfway across the world. 
Oh no, this is brilliant. And and it's true where you mentioned about they didn't have this when Star Trek first came out. I've just been reading a book about the letter campaign to save the series um, after season two of TOS. And it just makes it even more wonderful what they actually managed to achieve in those few months between seasons two and when the go ahead for season three came in. It was just amazing considering they didn't have the Internet. They didn't have mobile phones. Um, It's just amazing. Everything was done by letter writing and uh, occasionally by phone call. Even when I was when I was coming up, when I was a fan in the 1980s, uh, prior to my first professional work, I was involved in comic book fandom uh, very significantly and you know I never saw most of the people that I was really good friends with until we were adults you know it was it was a very different world fandom fandom back in the the 70s 80s even back into the 60s was a very different world and we didn't have that uh, anywhere near the capability to talk to each other as we do now no no skype skype is a podcaster's best friend definitely <laughs> <laughs> so talking about you andy can can you tell the listeners something about yourself well i have been a professional writer since 1985 um i actually got involved in the comic industry straight on from the fandom that i was doing I was part of a a uh, amateur press association an appa uh, that was called Titan Talk, and it was for Teen Titans fans. And two other kind of semi-famous members of that APA were Rob Liefeld, uh, who is now a fairly famous comic artist and one of the co-founders of Image, and Hank Knaltz, who is now one of the vice presidents of DC Comics. But at that time, we were all just teenagers, and um, they suggested to me that Fanagraphics was doing a book called Focus on George Perez, and that because I was such a hardcore uh, George fan, that I should contact them about writing something for it. So that eventually led to my first writing job for Fanagraphics in 1985, and from there I started writing for the fan magazines like Amazing Heroes, and comic scene and comics interview and things like that and after a few years of doing that i had really established a lot of contacts in the industry i had interviewed a lot of editors i had interviewed a lot of writers and artists and it enabled me to um to to gain a knowledge of not only how they did their job but also a lot of kind of it wasn't FaceTime because at that point we were doing everything by phone, but it was, um, they knew who I was. As long as I wrote good articles about them, they liked me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, so it was, it was kind of a really good, uh, understanding of what the comic industry was. And that led to my first comic book jobs, writing for various publishers back in the, the nineties, I wrote for just about every comic publisher, uh, in, you know, in America, I wrote for DC and Marvel and Image and Dark Horse, and I did a lot of work for Innovation Comics, which was a, a fantastic company. They're not around any longer, but I did a lot of licensed comics for them. Did uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and Child's Play and uh, an issue of Quantum Leap, and I was going to be working on Dark Shadows and so forth. So I, I got to be known as the guy who could easily work on Hollywood projects a lot of the writing that i did in the magazines was interviewing tv and movie stars and uh talking about hollywood oriented movie news 
the gentleman from Man Cold News has actually talked about how reading my columns in, in the old Amazing Heroes magazines and other magazines was kind of what inspired him to create Ain't It Cool News. And, you know, back in those days when all you had was magazines, that's where you got your news from. And I was one of those original uh, journalists who covered the, Holly, the, the confluence of Hollywood and comics and books and so forth. In the process of all that, I, I met Kim Yale at DC Comics, who was John Ostrander's wife, and she was editing the Star Trek comics for DC. She asked me at one point if I wanted to write uh, a couple issues of Star Trek The Next Generation, and at that point, I actually had not been watching the show very much. Um, I had tried a couple of them, and it wasn't super appealing to me. In the This is the very early days of the show. It was just a little too clean, and, and everything was a little too perfect uh, in those early seasons, at least in my opinion back then. But I agreed to do a storyline for her and uh, wrote a pretty cool story in which Data um, Data goes in onto the holodeck to solve the mystery of who Jack the Ripper was um, at the same time that the Enterprise is collecting materials from the space and sucks Red Jack into their computer system. And uh, so it became a, um, you know, the return of Red Jack and he, he becomes a sentient AI uh, and, and is able to create a physical form for himself outside of the holodeck. This was about, I finished the story about two weeks prior to Next Generation airing the story about Moriarty trying to create his own body <laughs> independent of the holodeck. He becomes a sentient AI and tries to create his own body outside of the holodeck. And, you know, DC Comics hadn't known this story was coming up. I was I was thus left with a story that was kind of like, well, this no longer has a place. And the story kind of died there. Um, Kim Yale went on to other projects. I went on to other projects. Never thought I'd work on Star Trek again. And it was later uh, in my career that I was writing for Marvel, and one of the editors there said, hey, do you want to write Star Trek? By that point, I had already worked on Star Wars projects, I had worked on X-Files projects, I had worked on a whole bunch of big franchises, and I said, um, sure, I'd love to write Star some Star Trek stuff, what do you have in mind? And he says, well, can you pitch me a Deep Space Nine story? At that point, I was a fan of Star Trek. I had been watching the shows and everything else, but I was not a super fan. I, I felt like there was a little bit of concern about how do I how do I do this without messing up Star Trek continuity, which I didn't know Star Trek continuity like I knew Star Wars continuity or you know comic book continuity or so forth. And so I went to there was a gentleman I knew named Mike Martin, and Mike had been trying to break in as a writer to both the comic industry and the book world. And I said, I, I knew that Mike could tell me without even blinking, you know, which episode did Spock first raise his eyebrow in? And he would not only know which episode it was, but he could tell me exactly what time it was. You know, it was 13 minutes and 12 seconds into, you know, this episode. And so I said, okay, you're you're a, a walking Trek encyclopedia. You're you're wanting to break into this field. Do you want to co-write with me? 
and that kind of launch that was back in um, 1987, uh, mm-hmm. that kind of launched our writing partnership, which lasted for about 10 years, mm-hmm. writing Star Trek. Uh, we wrote Star Trek for Marvel Comics. We wrote it for uh, Pocket Books. We did some licensed work on a subscription series for Atlas Editions. There was like cards that would come to you in the mail with facts, factoids and so forth. I think over in the UK you have them as fact files. That's right, yes. Uh, so we wrote that type of stuff. We wrote for the magazines. Uh, for a long time we were, we were uh, a favorite of the Paramount crew because our, our work was really well researched. None of the facts were ever wrong, so we didn't have to go back and, and change huge chunks of the story because we had gotten some fact wrong. And the combination of our work, um, Mike had strong points, I had strong points, bringing us together and combining those strong points really led to, I think, some some pretty cool stuff. What's your fir- earliest memories of Star Trek? How did you discover Star Trek? Well, I grew up in a little town in Montana. It was called Big Fork, Montana. Uh, and Montana is, I'm not sure what the what the comparison over in England would be, but Montana is has got more trees per every you know mile than the whole state has people. Wow. Um, it's <laughs> it's it's one of the largest states in the, in the United States, but it, ha- it has one of the smallest populations. It's very mountainous, and we had one television station, which did not air Star Trek. We we had a black and white television, and but we did get uh, back in back in the the seventies and and early eighties, there was what were called UHF stations, which was ultra high frequency, and they would they could broadcast, you know, a couple states over if you if you used your antennas right. And uh, so we got this one UHF station from Spokane, Washington, and they they aired Star Trek. And uh, I remembered, uh, I didn't watch it regularly, the original series, but I did watch it enough that I got, you know, I, I, I enjoyed it when I did watch it. So my favorite episode was Where No Man Has Gone Before, Largely because Kirk fought a psychic, you know, psychic character. So it was kind of a, uh, it's kind of a mix between a comic book, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a, he was battling a, a supervillain, you know, yeah. it wasn't just an alien. It was, it was kind of mixing comic books with, with science fiction. I love, and, and I liked that episode a lot. Uh, I also kind of, I loved the Tribble episode and I loved, uh, the episode with the Horda and, you know, there were, there were things that as a kid, they really stuck with me. Um, and then there was a lot of it that I just kind of never, I either never saw the episode or never, it didn't really stick with me. But some of the earliest memories were of that, uh, where no man has gone before and also watching, uh, several episodes of Star Trek, the animated series by filmation. And that had meaning later in my life, when I, as, as we'll talk about, when I worked on Filmation properties, I, I was really intrigued because Filmation had the ability to, to do whatever they wanted on screen in terms of aliens and characters. So it really felt like, like much more concrete science fiction to me when you had you know characters with bird wings and characters with three arms or five eyes or things like that and it really felt like a, a much more 
concrete form of sci-fi. Um, so that's my earliest Star Trek memories. Yeah. And now, obviously, we there's five series in total. Um, do you have have you kept up with all the shows of Star Trek? And if so, do you have a favorite or a favorite captain? My favorite captain would probably, at this point, be Picard. Although, you know, kind of, it, it waffles around depending on who, on kind of what season and, and how they were developing the characters at that point. Um, Cisco is certainly very, very strong in most of his stuff, and I think he was probably the most badass. Um, can I say badass yeah, on your show? Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Janeway. I thought. I thought when Janeway got into a, a, got you know her bun screwed on a little too tight on the top of her head, <laughs> and she got into a snit. She was, she, you know, she could kick any of the guys behinds. Kirk was actually oftentimes. I know this is heresy to say, but I thought that Kirk was was oftentimes, and this was because of how they had to structure their stories. They, they didn't have a lot of room for moral ambiguity. So oftentimes he seemed almost one of the um, uh, the, the least strong-willed of the characters. Uh, you know, it's funny that, that we now talk about how, how he was such a defender of, of the Prime Directive and everything else, but there were times when, when they were stretching so hard in the story to make sure that the Prime Directive was upheld that it really... I, I feel there were times that weakened Kirk's character. You know, Picard also had kind of some of those things happen early on. Um, once they got later into the series, Picard became, you know, a much stronger character. And that was all a function of once you got past the first couple of years, you could really start to develop those characters. The original series, they only had three seasons, so they didn't have as long to kind of develop some of the characterization and the conflict and so forth as, as they had once you got to the later series. Of course, now my favorite captain would be Captain Riker of the USS Titan because we got to write the Titan books, the, the original two Titan books, and um, you never got, got to see him really being a captain on screen, but you knew he, you know, he got his captaincy at the, at the end of the last movie. And you knew he was going off to the Titan, and we got to write those adventures. So now I would have to say Riker is my favorite captain. Speaking of, of you talking about Captain Kirk, um, have you seen the JJ films, um, Star Trek and Into Darkness? And what did you think of those? I did. I, I, I was really trepidatious when they were first talking about it because my, as with many fans... I was just terrified that he was just going to rewrite history and just just steamroller over everything, which is kind of what they're implying that they're going to do with the new Star Wars films, that they're going to take all the stuff that we know and just rewrite it. And I think that studios misunderstand and abuse their fans by doing things like that. They really need to pay attention to the people who have kept the franchises alive with millions and millions of dollars of merchandising and books and comics and things like that. And they really need to say, you know, we wouldn't be able to make this, these new movies or make these new TV shows without those fans support. And so I was, I was scared that JJ Abrams and company were going to just steamroller over our, our Star Trek history 
in making those films. And my editor at Pocketbooks, who was, he had seen the script and he was privy to it. And he, he kind of, at one point we we're having a conversation. He says, I can't tell you how and why, but I will just say, stop worrying about that. Worry about whether or not the movie's good, but don't worry about whether or not it's going to steamroll over the history. It's going to be okay. And I thought, okay, what does that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> you know, and then the movie comes on, and the first time we realize that it's a parallel universe and that the Star Trek that we've known and loved for so long still exists, it's just the parallel universe, I just, I, I almost, you know, did a smack your head in the, in the movie theater moment. <laughs> and and was just like, of course. Why was this not? Uh, why was this not obvious to everyone? I mean, Star Trek has alternate universes, uh, the mirror universe being the most famous. But that concept exists in the framework of Star Trek, just like it does. DC Comics and Marvel have alternate universes as well. And so, essentially, what J.J. Abrams was saying was, well, this is Star Trek Earth Two. Yeah. Or this is Star Trek, the Abrams universe, as the fans call it now. But it had never, like, it had never crossed my mind that he would actually go in that heavy into geekery to say we're going to actually use an element of Star Trek history to make this as completely valid while not invalidating anything that's happened before. And I thought, brilliant, brilliant. It 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 made it okay, and then I could enjoy it in the same way that I can enjoy in the comics, I can enjoy a story set on earth two or earth one or the new 52 and say, well, the other universes still exist. We just aren't reading those stories right now, or we aren't viewing those stories. So that was great. Now I, I still have that fear with the star Wars films, the new yeah. star Wars films, because they're, they don't have alternate universes. They have explicitly said, they're just going to steamroller over the history. They they have said everything you've supported for the last 30 years, including perhaps, you know, episode one through three, um, we're, we're, we're going to use what we want and not what we don't. And it doesn't matter what you've been buying or supporting yeah. for decades. We're just going to do what we want. And I think that that that, that unfortunately is a that's a, a corporate decision and and it could mean that that fans will really be frustrated by that star wars um though is a different galaxy than star trek and it doesn't have alternate universes they can't just say okay this universe still exists star trek he did it brilliantly by just saying okay that universe still exists we're now on a new new timeline new yeah. universe so let's talk about the Star Trek comics you did do with Marvel for DS9 and Star Trek Unlimited. With um, mm -hmm. with DS9, the show was still on the air at the time that you were writing some of the comics. What was that like? And, and had you come up with any ideas, like you mentioned earlier at DC, that the show was thinking about or vice versa? Well, it was. there was an interesting thing that happened. Number one, when we did the, the Star Trek comics, the first story that we did for deep space nine ended up being our fifth printed story which was issue 14 which was nobody knows the tribbles i've seen and uh that was the story that we pitched at that point we were just supposed to write a fill-in comic and it was just going to be one issue and we turned that one in and it was kind of a rashomon style story 
in which everybody's sitting around Quark's bar, Odo, Dax, O'Brien, and Bashir, and Morn are sitting around speculating on why why Klingons hate the Tribbles so much. And each of them comes up with a story as to what the real reason is. And it was a way that we could do flashbacks to the original series, and we could have some uh, some animated series, and we could we could poke fun at it. I mean, we had the Three Stooges in there. We had Indiana Jones in there. We had all sorts of like really, really funny stuff, um, as well as some kind of strong storytelling. It wasn't just silly stuff. Some of it was. Some of it was like, well, could this really be the reason, or could this be the, uh, you know, we didn't have an understanding as to why, and and it allowed us to build on little things that had been seen or talked about in the series, and then right at the end. Uh, Morn is about to tell his story, and we we end the story because, of course, you can never have Morn talking. We turned that plot in, and Paramount gave it the fastest approval they had ever in in franchise history. We got the fastest approval of any story that had ever been done. They just wow. we turned it in, and like within minutes, it was like not only was it approved, but he actually told the editor. He says, "I I love these guys." I want them to write the series regularly, get rid of the, the other authors because apparently he had been having some kind of problems with uh, the other authors. And, and he was like, I, I love these guys. I want them to write deep space nine regularly uh, because the next two storylines on the, on the series, they were about to go into this big crossover called the, uh, the tel- telepathy war was actually a couple oh, issues yeah. after that. Yeah. But we, we couldn't he didn't want to lead off with the Tribble story so we came up with a two-part Luxwana Troy story and then we did a, a couple issues that crossed over with, with telepathy war and really there was an interesting thing there because since Paramount liked us so much they were giving a, they were feeding us information here's where the series is going here's you know you can use Luxwana Troy because nobody is because we aren't going to use her on the show f- for a while, if ever again. And so we were we were able to kind of move forward with some characters and and not with others. And we were actually building to what was going to happen with our Star Trek stuff. Uh, we had come up with a series called Star Trek Phase 3, and it was going to be kind of exploring the darker side of the Federation. And we had a ship that was established, and it, it was seen in the film, kind of like flying off, um, off screen at one point in one of the big battle scenes. And we had established that that ship was thought to be destroyed, and the and the crew on it was thought to be dead, but in reality, it was being used as a black ops ship for Starfleet when they needed something to happen and couldn't sanction it. Yeah. And it was kind of a, you know, taking taking uh, Federation politics into darker territory. As we were working on that, they came up with Section 31 on <laughs> Deep Space Nine. And, you know, as again, it was one of those things. It's not like they were copying us any more than what happened to me with Next Generation was them copying me. It was just those ideas exist in the zeitgeist. And, you know, and people... 
because of the politics that were happening in the real world at the time and people not trusting the government and, you know, wars happening and everything else, people's mind just kind of went to a darker place. Well, could this future, could this perfect future really happen or would even the Federation have some dark secrets? And so we were taking it there with this new series and then Deep Space Nine decided to, to do Section 31. We were still going to, at that point, develop... We had, we had written the first uh, book, which was going to be a Deep Space Nine crossover, and it would have introduced the concept. Then it was going to go on to its own series. We were going to be doing uh, a new Deep Space Nine series, which would have introduced the first gay Klingons. And we were doing a couple other series. We had written a Star Trek Voyager fill-in. Um, we had done a Star... There was a Star Trek What If series called Realities, that was in development and we had written the first episode of that and uh it was a 48 page special and then we were going to do a second issue the concept of what if comics at marvel was you know you take a, a major event and you say well what if this happened differently what would the consequences of that be hmm. and so what we started out with was what if gold ducat became the emissary and it results in you know, it, it's pre-Deep Space Nine, the series, yeah. and then results in, by the end of the story, this massive battle for the Quadrant has happened, and uh, the Enterprise gets destroyed. Most, most, of the, most of the ship gets destroyed. Yeah. Many of the crew get killed. You know, characters switch sides and allegiances because they haven't developed as they did in the regular series you know it's it's something where you can literally you, you can kind of go anywhere with it but we tried to keep in the bounds of is this plausible would would kira really have done this would odo really have done this um faced with a different set of choices it actually ended setting up our second series which is that we found out that because the enterprise was answering this call to deep space nine uh or Tarek nor they missed the call of the Borg uh, heading towards Earth. And right at the very end of the story, we find out that the president of Earth has been Borgified. Wow. <laughs> that, that set up our second, you know, our second uh, what-if story, which would have been wh what, what would happen if the Borg took over the Earth. So we had done all these stories. We had written them. Uh, several of them were drawn. And Marvel Comics had a... Um, they made a financial decision to end all ties with Paramount as a licensor. And so suddenly within like, you know, a day, all these series that we were doing, we were doing three different series and um, suddenly they were all gone. Everything just died. Star Trek was done at Marvel. And it was, it was, it was cool. The time we got to work on it. It certainly led to all the other, uh, because Paramount loved Mike and mine's work so much they kept pushing us to everybody else that's how we got work on the atlas editions card series and work for some of the other licensors and then eventually we got to write uh, section 31 rogue our first novel for pocketbooks those stories sound absolutely brilliant and would you would you think of pitching them to say people like idw who currently have the comics well, IDW has been pitched by myself uh, multiple times, and at this point, they want to go in a different direction. Fine. I even had a meeting. I took Tim Russ with me, 
and I had a there was a British artist who painted a cover for Titan number one, and I took Tim Russ over with with me at the meeting. Tim Russ plays Tuvok, of course, and pitched them a a Titan miniseries that would be co-written by Tim, who's who's also a, a writer, co-written by Tim and myself, would be a little bit Tuvok centric, but of course involved the whole the whole Titan crew. They decided that that uh, that wasn't the direction they wanted to go in, even though at that time the Titan books were the number one uh, novels being published. And all, there were all these fan things online where people had done polls. What do you want to see IDW publish? And Titan was coming up as the number one um the number one option in every single poll, everybody was just clamoring. They wanted to see Titan. They wanted to see Titan. Um, but IDW, that wasn't the direction they wanted to go in. So you can't, you can only push so far about that. And then you just have to go, okay, it's not the direction they want. I, I would hope that at some point somebody will, will say, you know, um, Hey, there's all this material at Marvel that was drawn. That's really cool. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All we have to do is publish it. You know that would be that would be a really cool thing to happen. Uh, and I think a Titan comic is, you know, it, it's hard to say any any kind of comic is printing money these days. Hmm. But um, it would certainly seem that a Titan comic would be very popular with the fans. And as one of the co-creators of Titan, Titan the book series, uh, it made sense. You know, or it makes sense to kind of have me involved. And I thought having Having Tim Russ was kind of a, a really cool um, element as well, but we'll see. We'll see. I, I, I will never say never. I actually, I have a project uh, that I may be working on in the future here that in my wildest dreams, I never would have believed it would happen. And uh, and it did. It came up out of, out of the blue. And and um, so if I get to do it, it will be one of these things where I was just like, never, never could have believed it. Now I get to do it. Um, so I'm hoping that maybe someday we'll get to do Star Trek Titan as a comic. Well, that'd be brilliant. I, I love the Titan story, so it'd be really nice to see that in comic form. So speaking of, of Titan, you mentioned there that you started the series and you, you co-created the series. What was that like, starting something from, from scratch and, and creating such a diverse crew? Well, it was incredibly freeing to do. One of the things that Marco, when he talked to us about doing Titan... And he's, in in many ways, he's as much a co-creator of the the series as Mike and I were. Marco put down a a very specific rule on this. He said that, you know, of the crew member, there's only going to be one-tenth of them that is human. And I want this to be the most diverse ship in Star Trek history. I want this to be, have the most amount of aliens, and I want the part of the point of this to be the alien races and the, and and peoples understanding each other and coming you know we've we we've talked the talk in star trek for so long but because tv shows have a budget that aren't there in books and comics you couldn't do uh you know uh, an entire ship of of aliens but now we could and it made sense that riker with his background and troy with her with her empathy would be the absolute best people to be in charge of that ship. Plus, you know, having a married couple as as the the heads of the ship was was a pretty cool option. But then it became kind of okay. Well, what alien races are we going to use? 
what what ways are they going to be uh, a part of the ship? How can we do something that is that's new and revolutionary in Star Trek? How can we bring back other characters like Melora Pazlar or Tuvok? I really, really, really wanted to use Tuvok. Um, he was my favorite character on Voyager, and I felt that Tim Ross's portrayal was was just absolutely brilliant. And they says, well, Christy Golden isn't really using him much in her Voyager books. She had kind of sidelined him. And so let's see if, if she agrees, then you can use him over in Titan. And she did. And, and so, uh, so we got to use Tuvok. We had always, from when we created him in Star Trek Next, uh, Next Generation Section 31 Rogue, the longest, most semicolon title in Star Trek history. <laughs> <laughs> with the shortest amount of words, but it's just got it's got four semicolons or something. But in Rogue, we had created Renault Carew, who was Hawk Lieutenant Hawk's lover, and we had always intended that his character would continue forward. We knew Hawk died in First Contact, but we had always intended that that uh, uh, unless there was you know some kind of problem or we were we were never writing Star Trek again, his character would actually have a progression and go forward, even though we didn't know where that was going to be. So we had in various other stories through the Worlds of Deep Space Nine book that we did and the Captain's Table book that we did, we had put him into some of those stories, showing here's where his progression's going. And by the time we did a couple of those, we knew that Titan was on the books, and we knew that we were going to bring Renault Carew over to Titan. Beyond that, we had some things where we just kind of said, well, we, we want to put this character, we want to put that character. Some of those were created by Mike, some of them were created by the earlier Titan authors, or I'm sorry, by the later Titan authors, and then we retrofitted them in. They, you know, we found out things about about their characterization and then um then we says okay well let's let's see how we can do this you know that was characters created by chris bennett but there were a couple that uh, that i want to point out that were kind of favorites of mine so here's here's an easter egg for your listeners that they never got to see in the book there's a scene in either book one or book two where brolic who's the ferengi geologist on the ship sleeps with the chief engineer um and because he's kind of a, a horn dog and we wanted to have a, a Ferengi female who was completely in charge of her own self on the ship uh, and, to, you know, to have it be kind of a very different version of a female Ferengi. And so we kind of said, well, Brolic is Bette Midler as a Ferengi. She's kind of, <laughs> she's kind of brassy and ballsy and so forth. And we did this scene where, where she sleeps with the, chief engineer and there, there was a thing where i was like i wrote the scene and i thought you know the ferengi heads look like butts they look like butt cheeks and <laughs> so i said what would a ferengi butt look like <laughs> this this tells you where your mind yeah. goes when, when you're writing like weird weird star trek sex scenes that can't that can't actually be sex scenes <laughs> and um, so I wrote this, it was just like one one line, and I wrote this scene where uh, the engineer is watching her walk away from his bed, and, and he says, you know, her cheek glistened in the moonlight, because I thought, well, if their heads look like two, two halves of a butt, then their butt would only be one cheek, 
<laughs> so the line was her her cheek listened to the, you know in the light or yeah. something like that. Oh, <laughs> the editor was like that's just too weird i don't want to be thinking about braggy <laughs> butts <laughs> so he edited that out oh. um so that was that was one that was one like funny little story about like just trying to figure out what would aliens having having sex with that when you can't actually do sex in star trek um, other than, you know, what happens afterwards, they get out of bed, you know, what would that be like? But the other was when, when I got to create the ship's doctor and my concept behind that was, was to do a new alien. And I says, I want the ship's doctor to be the character that any sane person or alien would be terrified of i want this to be the last thing that you want probing or poking at you uh, what is the most creepy horrifying scary thing that i can think of that would also be a doctor and that's how i created dr Ree, who was a pakrathon uh, doctor and and it, he's essentially an eight foot velociraptor um <laughs> You know, and he's got these immense teeth, and he eats raw meat, and he's got these huge claws, and it's the last person or the last creature that you would want operating on you because you, the last thing you see as you're getting anesthetized is this giant dinosaur with, <laughs> with claws and teeth, and, and it just it seemed to me to be like the most fun to have is to take this character and but then to give him a personality where he's so gentle and so intelligent. Um, but it also has a little bit of a weird sense of humor. I mean, like he jokes about eating a baby in one of the uh, in one of our stories, and they don't know whether he's joking or not because they're like, "Well, we don't know. Do you eat babies?" You know? <laughs> but we also thought it, it, it went a little bit into. There's a scene where he's eating in the uh, in the mess hall, and he's eating alone because nobody will sit with him. They're scared to sit with him, and he's eating raw meat and everything. And Riker goes, Riker, who's also terrified of him, who's just met him, goes over and sits with him to give him a sense that not everybody is going to be bigoted. Not everyone's going to be scared of him. And some of that comes from the aspect of what, you know, I'm a big guy. A lot of Star, uh, a lot of Star Trek fans, a lot of science fiction fans are big guys. And we get people, they'll, they'll have preconceptions of us, what we're going to be like. Um, what we're going to be. And so I thought, what would this character who looks so horrifying and is so big and so imposing, but he's the gentlest, most intelligent, you know, character on the ship. Um, let's give him that experience of not, not exactly bullying, but the, the social isolation that many fans can identify with. Um, let's see how that plays out and let's, Let's have a character who's socially isolated on there, not just in the way that you know the, um, you know the rebels were in the in the um, early days of Voyager, but more in the sense of you know a, a really profound sense of isolation that came from his his looks, rather than his his reality. Gratefully, what that did, the fans absolutely loved Doctor Ree. Because not only was he really cool, but they could actually identify him with him. And when you say, I identify with an eight-foot velociraptor who's a doctor on a Federation ship, that's saying something. <laughs> you know? 
I mean, you, you know, that, that really, I, I think we had a lot of fun writing for him because it was so, you know, it, it enabled us to really kind of get to some of those interpersonal elements of Star Trek. When we were writing the Titan books, we got to tell some cool stories that really moved characters forward. These weren't characters who were on a TV show, so we were able to make life-changing choices for them. And we were able to lead up to actual events changing in their lives. You know, Deanna Troya does get pregnant and, and um, you know, and characters do have profound things that happen in their lives. And that was something you couldn't do when you were working on, say, Deep Space Nine and the show is on the air or Voyager and the show's on the air or even Enterprise. Once the show's off the air, or in the case of Titan, where we were working with characters that were never going to be on the air, um, we were able to kind of really make some life choices for them that, that furthered their storylines. Speaking of characters, let's talk about Ranu Karu. How difficult was it to get the character established? Did you have any any negative thoughts about the character, bringing him on board? Not just, say, from the readers, but from... Uh, CBS, Straight Paramount, and even at Pocket Books. Well, you know, it was interesting. When we were developing uh, Section 31 Rogue, there was actually... When I when I wrote the Next Generation story for DC, I had written a scene, and it was two friends of mine that lived in San Francisco, and, and they were Star Trek fans and, and a gay couple. And I had written this scene where Riker and Data walk down the hallway, they, they run into this couple... And they congratulate them on their anniversary, and they and they move on, and that's it. And then and you know we might see them in the background then, you know, in a later in the story or something. But it was just it was one of these things that this is very early on, and there wasn't really yet an understanding that there was not going to be gay couples on in Star Trek on television or in the books. Um, and at that point, Gene Roddenberry hadn't even really made much of a decision about it because it was very early on in the days of Next Generation. So I was just doing it because I wanted to do it. And DC Comics was going to support it and Paramount was going to support it. And then the story just kind of got ended for reasons I've already said. But when we were assigned to do the Next Generation thing, one of the things I thought was, I want to I want to put that, that scene back in and I want to actually have the gay couple be a part of the story mm. and then we started developing and we were like okay we're doing um, next uh, next generation where do we want to set it how do we want to set it and so forth and one of the things that had struck me if you watch first contact lieutenant hawk is all over that movie in ways that no other red shirt ever ever was no red shirt got as many lines as him the characters are all talking to him like he's somebody who they actually have a relationship with like he's important he's there's clearly a story behind his character that we didn't see yet and i hadn't known about the rumors that hawk was supposed to be gay in the film until after we had uh, already started on the project. But interestingly enough, there were all these rumors in the fans that Hawk was intended as a gay character and then Paramount had decided not to do it. So there was this, there was this interesting confluence where we said, okay, the story is 
what is Lieutenant Hawk's story? Why is he so important? Why do the other characters treat him with such respect and such deference? There, he's done something really cool and really interesting. So we're going to make him the other central character of the storyline, other than the main crew. And we're going to explain why this happened. But because we know he dies, we're going to start with him already dead. We're going to f- do flashback for most of the book. And then we're going to end with what happens after he died. And it just kind of all started falling into place. And I'm like, he's the gay character. And because he's he's in that scene, he's got a lover. And the lover survives. Because I didn't want it to be, we're going to introduce the gay character and then kill him. Because way too many movies and TV shows do that. The, the, the gay character becomes the victim. And so by, by putting Renault Carew in the book and having him be a survivor... It not only gave him an interesting story, um, the survivor's guilt, which we we don't really see. We don't other red shirts. We don't see their husbands or wives or significant others mourning them. We never see anybody mourning on Star Trek for the most part. Um, characters die all the time, and we might see a funeral, but we don't see what the grieving process is like. We don't see the mourning process. So we said this would really give us some some significant characterization value. And so it all kind of started falling into place and we knew it was going to be a section 31 book. So then we, you know, we just started putting the pieces together. Um, when we left the book with rogue, um, Renault Carew tells Picard that he may not, he doesn't know if he can continue working with Worf. Number one, who's the guy who actually shot Hawk in first contact. And, and that's a really, compelling concept right there like we know he had to shoot hawk but as carew says in the book you know picard you were taken over by the borg and everybody did everything they could to save your life my husband was taken over by the borg and and he got shot you know and it's you know it was like we were really exploring that concept as to how that would what that would mean and he says you know i may not stay I may not be able to work with Worf. I may not stay in Starfleet. I don't know what I'm going to do yet. And we left that really open-ended. We didn't want him to make a choice in the book because we weren't sure where we were going to go with it. And then eventually, as we saw in our other Star Trek books, um, if you follow kind of the timeline of it, he goes from there into Worlds of Deep Space Nine Trill, in which we have the uh, essentially the Trill Civil War and uh, the end of the symbiotes. Uh, or is it? Um, I don't want to do, be too spoilery. If you haven't read the book, it's 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 actually one of my favorites of everything we wrote. It's very very intense. So we so he goes from there to the the Worlds of Deep Space Nine Trail book, and then from there he goes into the Captain's Table story, which is a very very weird story. As we know in the Captain's Table concept, it's it's a bar at the end of the universe where people go and tell their stories, and some of them might be real and some of them might not. And we already know that Riker tends to kind of exaggerate at times. So we were like, okay, well, let's, let's talk about Riker's marriage and honeymoon and so forth. And, uh, and we involved Renault Carew in, in that process and in that story. And he makes the choice to join Riker's crew at that point. And that then led to Titan. So there's your chronology, even though they were published kind of in, in a different order. 
uh, if you want to follow the character, he that's that's kind of his his arc. And then he's on Titan. People who paid attention when we did Titan, there's there's not just one gay character on the ship, as there would be on you know all the ships. There's 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 gay and lesbian and bi and trans and and aliens and you know who knows what's all over all the ships. Um, so we actually established there's several uh, gay male characters on Titan, but there's a very very subtle scene in one of our books where we established who his boyfriend would be eventually. Uh, Jeffrey Thorne, when he wrote his Titan book, kind of alluded to that more, but he didn't name him because he was waiting for Mike and I to come back and actually write that story of, okay, when it, when did they become a couple? When did he kind of heal his heart from the loss of his, of his partner? And um, I do get some criticism from the fans, interestingly. I mean, at the very start, there was all this criticism of, oh my God, how dare you have a gay character? But... The other interesting criticism I get is, you know, how long is he going to mourn the loss of his lover? And I don't know how many people have lost, uh, you know, their partner in their life, but it's not something like six months later, you're fine and you rebound from it. You know, many people, it can take years and years and years. Some people never rebound from that. We don't really feel like he was really moping around for all those years. It just, you only saw him in very specific storylines. So let me go back. Uh, real quickly to <laughs> real quick being a joke here um, you asked was there any problems with it and here is an interesting thing that happened without going into a lot of, of very specific things that I that I can't really go into let's just say that there were people in the paramount food chain that were not very supportive of the idea of using gay characters on the TV show. And those people are commonly referred to as Berman and Braga, but I'm not <laughs> saying that that's the case. I'm just saying that there were, everyone who worked at Star Trek knew that there was a, uh, there was a resistance to the very concept of putting in gay characters. And often in interviews, when it was ever discussed, Berman or Braga would say things like, well, we haven't come up with a story that specifically addresses the gay issue. And that really rankled fans because they were like, why does it have to be an issue? Just put a gay character in. Don't make it an issue. Don't make the story about them being gay. Just have them be a gay character. You know, you don't have it be if Riker meets a girl this is when he was single, you know, it wasn't like, oh, your heterosexuality is an issue. Um, it was just that it was there. It was part of the character. And it was very difficult, apparently, for some people at Paramount to ever think outside the box and to ever not to ever say, oh, this doesn't need to be an issue. So there was resistance at Paramount about putting gay characters on the show. When we approached Pocketbooks about this, they said, of course, why wouldn't we? You know, I don't see any problem with it. And I, I explained, well, here's the resistance you might get from Paramount. So we then went to our li the licensing people at Paramount, um, one of whom uh, was openly gay. And he was like, well, of course, let's do it. Let's, let's just do it. Let's break this, this wall of silence. Let's have this happen. And there had been... There had been some minor gay characters in some of the some of the books, 
you know, they, they might have a sentence or two about them or they might have a line or two. And then Keith DeCandido was in his Starfleet Corps of Engineers had had created a couple of gay characters that were just starting to be developed further uh, when we did Rogue. But th those were ebooks, and they weren't like a lot of fans didn't even know about them at that point. So it was really to have what ended up being a bestseller. Rogue was on the bestseller list for several weeks. Um, to have a bestseller in their top franchise, Next Generation was their top franchise, directly address this was pretty major. But what had to happen to get it done, we knew it was going to get a lot of press. We knew it was going to kind of blow the internet apart. And so we went to a bunch of different magazines and newspapers and so forth. And we says, here's this story that's going to happen. But if you report on it before this date, it might not happen. It might get killed. Uh, and meanwhile, at Paramount, the people in the licensing department kept our manuscript away from certain people's desks oh. so that they didn't have a chance to review the manuscript <laughs> until it was at the printer. And at the point that it went to the printer, then they gave the manuscript to those people and it was too late for them to make any changes. It was at the printer. They couldn't stop it going to the printer. The book came out, all the media sources that we had contacted had already done their interviews, they published their stories. We, I did interviews in Australia and Germany, all over the world. Um, it became like this huge thing, the book was a bestseller, and suddenly that wall was broken. And now almost every Star Trek book has, has gay characters mixed in, and nobody thinks it's a big deal anymore. The TV show and the movies still have yet to do it, and I just just last week there was an interview with one of the people from Abrams Camp. It might have been Abrams himself, and they were asking about, you know, when are you gonna are you going to put some gay characters into the, the movies? And he gave another one of these like, well, why would we do that? What would their issue be? You know, and it was, it was like it was like, wait, have we not made any progress in twenty years? You know that we that it still has to be. We can't we can't just just be there um, as we are in reality. But we'll we'll hope that maybe somebody somewhere will will tap tap the filmmakers on the shoulder and say you know doesn't need to be an issue. Just needs to be there. <laughs> <laughs> well, can I say that Rogue is an amazing book. I I have read Rogue and it, it's a brilliant book. It really is. I really enjoyed that. You can totally say that. I love it when people say that. <laughs> Moving along to Enterprise, um, you were tasked with relaunching Enterprise. How did that come about? Mike and I had, by the time we got the Enterprise job, had worked on a bunch of novels for Marco Palmieri and had also done some uh, Starfleet Corps of Engineers stuff for Keith to Canada, though. Um, we hadn't worked yet for Margaret Clark, who was the other Star Trek editor, and so we went to her and said, hey, can we write anything for you? And she says, well, we're, we're coming up with some Enterprise stuff. Would you be interested in that? And our first thought, because at that point, I think the series had ended when we started or something like that. But one of our very, very early thoughts was, can we fix that horrible finale? <laughs> <laughs> and, and she's like, well, she, she, interestingly enough, she said, that's actually on your task list. <laughs> You know, she was like, the finale of Enterprise was so, so badly done. But beyond that, the, I mean, there was some talk 
even at the time, that it might not be the finale. They, they could have brought the series back. There was still, like, some question of it. So Tripp's death in the finale is done in such a way that if they decided to do another season, they could have waved their hands around and been like, well, what you thought you saw isn't real. That's commonly done, especially in season enders. Uh You know, in the season ender, you get an explosion and you go, oh my God, these three CSI operatives died in the explosion. And then, you know, they come back next season and they reveal how the CSI operatives, you know, escaped the explosion. Every season ender of an action adventure series ends with somebody died. Oh no. (laughs) And then, you know, the next season, as long as the actor is willing to come back, then they reveal how they, how they brought him back. If the actor is, is not coming back, like, you know, say if you talk about the TV show ER, if they have an actor who wants out of the series, they don't kill him in the season ender. They kill them like three or four episodes before that. Mm -hmm so that they can get story out of them dying and they can have characters reacting and they can have flashbacks or they can have the ghost or whatever on an action adventure show. If there's an actor that wants to leave it, that's what they do. They don't kill them at the, at the very end. They kill them before the end. If somebody dies, I guarantee you, if somebody dies (laughs) in the final episode, but there's going to be another season, 99% of the time they're coming back. Trip was kind of that. Had they brought back Enterprise for another season, Trip would have been back. It was just that's just the way it was. When we looked at the the Enterprise stories, and she said, you know, you've got to undo this. We said, okay, knowing the Trip is coming back, how can we make this really cool? How can we come up with the most ingenious way of of having Trip there? but not have it be the obvious way. And so that's when we came up with all the stuff of, of him infiltrating the Romulans and because we knew we were going to lead towards the Romulan war. And we knew that that was, had the TV series continued, that's what they were going to do. They were going to head towards the Romulan war. It was just that time in Star Trek history. So they had to lead towards that. So we had to lead towards that. So we were able to kind of say, all these things the TV show would have done, here's where we're going to take them. But I'll tell you, the, um, <laughs> you know, the fans kind of reacted when we brought, when we brought Trip back. The fans just reacted one of two ways. They were either like, what? How dare you? Or they were like, oh, bless you. We will, <laughs> we will sing your praises to the heavens. And it was kind of nowhere. It was one or the other. It was kind mm-hmm. of nowhere in between. But really, I think... If the fans that were like, how dare you, how dare you destroy canon, if they really looked at it and, and, and they understood what was happening behind the scenes, if they knew, okay, they were going to bring him back if there was another season, then they would have been like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at both Titan and Enterprise, where they've gone now, are you keeping up to date with the books? And do you like where both series have gone? Once I work on a project, I get very, very close to it, and and it becomes a part of my family, and I fill my fill my office and in my area with that project. When I was working on Star Wars, I did that. I had six bookshelves full of Star Wars reference that was right next to my desk. I had, you know, all this material. When I was no longer working on Star Wars, I kind of put it away. Um, I would occasionally read stuff. 
And as a fan, I will go back and look at things. Same thing happened with Star Trek. When when Mike and I uh, split as as writers, as a writing team, um, and he continued to write Star Trek, there was a part of me that said, I want to continue reading. But there was also a part of me that said, you know, I'm not working on Star Trek right now. Let me concentrate on the things I am doing. And at that point in time, I was doing a lot of, I was working on DVD special features um, for the Filmation DVD sets. I was working for other companies doing special features. And I was writing my own books. So it kind of became, I stopped following a lot of Star Trek in the book form because A, I didn't need to, and B, it was um, kind of, you know, it's kind of like when your kid goes off to college or something like that and they aren't home anymore. It's a little bit painful. I keep up every now and then. I'll, I'll look into things or I'll read Wikipedia entries. Or I'll kind of see where things have gone. But, um, but I have to confess that I haven't read a lot of what's come after me because I'm no longer working on the projects. Yeah. If I ever work on them again, of course I'll read them and I anticipate that I'll enjoy them. Interestingly, I was on an episode of Leverage as an extra. I, I do some acting and, and uh, shows that film here in Portland. I'm, I'm an extra on a lot. I've been on Grimm a whole bunch of times and, uh, and on Leverage like four or five times. So I was on this episode of Leverage and there were only two people in this. There were, there were three people in the scene. There was myself and another burly workman was what we were called. <laughs> and the scene was we were, we were wheeling this big box into a, into a locked office and then leaving. It was, you know, fairly simple. It was no lines, no nothing. And then, then the box would open and one of the spies from leverage was, was hidden inside it and she would infiltrate the office by, by that. So I go in there and I had supposedly been cast because of my beard I had been told by the casting agency that the director had a beard just like mine, a really long goatee and a big mustache and so forth, and that that's why I had been cast. And I was like, okay, well, we'll see if that's true or not. So I go there, and they walk us through our paces, and the crew's there milling about. And the other the other actor I was working with like goes, I think someone over there is trying to get your attention. And I look over, and there's this enormous african-american gentleman who's like waving madly and it's jeffrey thorne who wrote the fourth titan book and he comes bounding over and he's like andy what are you doing here and i says well i'm i'm an extra on this what are you doing here? he goes i wrote this episode <laughs> so he's chatting with me and he's all excited and the director comes into the room and he like calls him over and sure enough, the director has a beard exactly like mine. And Jeff's like, this is Andy Mangles. He's a great writer. You should like, ah, and he's, he's like, he's, he's singing my praises to the director. And then the star who's hidden in the box comes into the room to, to get her blocking. And she, she recognized me from two of the other episodes I had done. So she comes over. So at one point, as my fellow actor is standing by there with his jaw hanging down, <laughs> I look over Jeffrey Thorne's shoulder. And I have at this point, I'm in the corner. And in front of me is Jeffrey Thorne, the writer, the star, of, one of the stars of the show, and the director. And they're all talking to me. And I look over Jeffrey Thorne's shoulder at the crew. And they're all like standing there, like, who is this guy? 
why is the director, writer, and star talking to him? And what do we do now? They're all just like standing there staring at me. It was one of these fun moments. Jeffrey Thorne and I went out to dinner and we talked about Titan and he's written more Titan. You know, I mean, it's one of these things that I look forward to hopefully getting to work on Titan and Star Trek again. And at the point that I'm actively working on it, then I then I will go back and I'll re- reread all the other material. But I do check in from time to time and a lot of fans will tell me, oh, here's what happened here. Here's what happened there. You know, when I work on Star Trek again, I'm I I will be as big a fan as I as I was. It's just something that you kind of have to separate yourself from when you're not actively working on it. Now you've actually written um, a book about filmation. Can you tell us about that and and why you chose that project? And and there's some links to Star Trek as well, of course. Filmation Studios was one of the biggest animation studios from the the 1960s to the mid 1980s. And a lot of what they did was work on properties that were developed from other television series or sometimes other books. They did the Superman, Batman, Aquaman series. They did the Archies. They did shows uh, based on Gilligan's Island and um, so forth. They were really, they said, if it works in live action, why can't it work in animation? And Filmation really made a lot of major changes to how animation was done for Saturday morning television. I mean, really, they were one of the fathers of Saturday morning television. Prior to to them offering their stuff to the networks, most mostly what was on Saturday mornings was reruns of film cartoons packaged with with you know kitty show hosts. Um, or they would they would just run a whole bunch of film cartoons together, and they would have you know Warner Brothers cartoons or or things like that as reruns. But Hanna Barbera and Filmation um, kind of led the way in establishing new material for Saturday morning television. And what's interesting the the Star Trek connection is kind of an interesting one, and you can read a lot more about it in my book, which is called Lou Scheimer Creating the Filmation Generation. Filmation was actually talking with Paramount about doing an animated Star Trek while the show was still on the air. They actually began developing it for Saturday mornings while the show was still before it had even been canceled. And it took so many years in development that it was all the way into the you know second or third run of reruns and fandom was really going bring back star trek bring back star trek bring back star trek and that was the point at which filmation actually came out with star trek the animated series and a lot of fans have uh, they really kind of malign the animated series without having watched it um or without understanding what um what was behind it almost everybody who worked on the animated series was somebody who had worked on the original series almost every actor from the original series came back to do their voices on the animated series that was unheard of nobody did that some of the scripts for the animated series were actual scripts that would have been done as live action episodes had the series continued they were things that had been commissioned for the live action series, and then they used them in the animated series instead. Yeah. 
So for the fans to say, well, the animated series is stupid and dopey and, and you know, so forth, uh, and it's not real Star Trek, that's, that's complete BS. Because it was written, developed, and acted by the same people who did the original series. Now, did it have some silly moments in it? Yes. But it also had some really cool moments. Did it have stilted animation? Yes. But it didn't have the budget that the live-action series had. And back then, if you compare the animation on Star Trek to the animation on any other show at that point in time, they were all stilted animation. Nobody had gorgeous... It wasn't... You couldn't do feature animation like Disney was doing on a TV show budget. You just couldn't do it. So did Star Trek look like Star Trek? Yes. Did it sound like Star Trek? Did it... Were the adventures Star Trek adventures... Absolutely. Nobody can deny that. And it actually was nominated for multiple Emmy Awards and won an Emmy Award. And it was the first time Star Trek won an Emmy Award. <laughs> so for people to kind of discount Star Trek the Animated Series as being, as being you know, awful or, or non-canon or whatever was, is really frustrating. Now, Oddly, Gene Roddenberry would kind of flip-flop on the issue. When the show was on the air, and even for a couple years after, he was talking about it like it was the second coming. It was, he loved it, he loved it, he loved it. And then, when they started doing Next Generation, he was like, oh no, it's, you know, we we aren't going to have anything to do with the animated series, it's awful. And then later, he was back to, oh, I love it. (laughs) So, Gene changed his mind about a lot of things. The animated series is one of them. But there got to be this idea that, well, you can't reference the animated series in anything. You can't use it in the comics. You can't use it in the books. You can't, you know, the animated series is bad. That didn't actually come from Gene. That came from Gene's assistant. And anybody who knows Star Trek history will know about his certain assistants that he had that were, shall we say, uh, interesting personalities of their own. But the whole anti-animated series stuff came from the assistant, not from Gene. Gene was great friends with Lou Scheimer, who was the head of Filmation Studios. Lou actually went to Gene's son's christening and had, you know, knew the family and they were friends. There was absolutely no animosity from Gene Roddenberry over the animated series. It all came from the assistant. And people who grew up to write Star Trek later both for the live-action series and for the comics and the books, who grew up with both the original series and the animated series, were, were chafing to actually introduce characters into it. And at one point, they couldn't. Like, when DC Comics was there, and Peter David actually wrote some animated series characters into the DC Comics, and suddenly he couldn't use them anymore, because he was told, no, 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 those are off-limits. But then they started creeping little by little into the TV show, and you had references to that, you know, like with the Sealot Sealot, on Vulcan, uh, Spock's Sealot. And so once the TV show started doing it, you know, they had five or six references on the Deep Space Nine, and uh, I think even Voyager had some references. Um, Once they started doing that, then we were able to kind of do that in the books as well. And so not just Mike and I on our Star Trek books, but a lot of the writers would write in references to animated series episodes. And it was kind of, 
it was a little bit vindication years later when I was working on the DVD sets and Paramount actually asked me to pitch uh, to do all the special features for the DVD sets. And I didn't get the job. They gave it to somebody in-house, but they did end up using me as a consultant on it. And uh, I provided them with a huge amount of material that's, that's used on the animated series DVD sets. And they're now considered, you know, for the most part, they're considered canon. I mean, there's elements that are like, okay, that's too silly to yeah. include. Inflatable Enterprise is just <laughs> silly to include. But you know what? They didn't have the concept of holograms. Yeah. <laughs> you know, doing an Inflatable Enterprise worked back then because they didn't have the concept of holograms. So, you know, that's what they did. They did an inflatable version. Nowadays, they would say, well, they did a holographic Enterprise. Or they, they used the... The, the warp fields to create a, a spatial anomaly that resembled the Enterprise or something. How is one any more silly than the other? You know, I actually call that Trechnobabble. Whenever whenever we were we were writing Star Trek, Mike would write all the Trechnobabble. And what that was was a Star Trek explanation for the science that doesn't exist. You know, it's it's funny that people people will fans will go oh well that couldn't couldn't actually exist and we're like well wait a minute you you are talking about you know a series that has teleportation and you know, <laughs> holodecks and things like that and and aliens who all magically speak english uh even with translators which magically everyone has you know so you're talking about that and you're saying well it's it's silly for this part to exist and so we would uh that's when you kind of wave your hands and you go trekno babble that covers it that's the <laughs> The spatial anomaly causes this, or the warp field generator, or the Broussard collector, or the... <laughs> There's always a way around it if you use Star Trek science. Oh, definitely. And for the listeners, we'll put the links to um, your book and all your books um, on the show notes, so the listeners can find out where to get that. Oh, fantastic. You know, the weird thing is, I just, just two days ago, I got... Uh, a royalty statement from the publisher and almost all of our star trek books are out of print in paper form but they're now starting to reap to, to publish them in ebooks yeah. so like rogue if you want to get it you have to buy it in an ebook form or find a used copy yeah. because the uh the, the paper copies are all going up in price it's it's amazing uh, one of my coworkers at a job I was at looked up my stuff on Amazon once. He says, "Do you realize your Star Trek books are like seventy five dollars?" I was like, "No, no, no." And then I looked, and sure enough, it's the books that are out of print. But you can you can now get everything on ebook form, as far as I know. The filmation book, which is available on Amazon, it does have a huge amount of material about what what the development of the Star Trek animated series was. Uh, how it was developed, what it might have been had they done it when the show was still on the air. There's some artwork in there um, that's never been seen before of you know development of the of the series. There's quite a bit in there about Star Trek. So even if you're only a Star Trek fan, you should get this filmation book. And if if you're not just a Star Trek fan, the the book covers the entire company um, all the way from. Superman, Batman, Aquaman, up through Star Trek and Fat Albert and the Archies, all the way up to its the the later days where they were doing He-Man and She-Ra and Ghostbusters and Brave Star and so forth. So there's a lot of there, there's a lot of material in the book. There, there's two things that I'll tell you. Number one, if you buy it directly from the company, Tomorrow's, 
um, you will get a digital file copy sent to you of the book in full color, which it's only in black and it's in black and white except for 16 pages if you buy it in print. You really should buy it in print because it's 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 a, a very thick, very big book, and it's printed gorgeously. And if you buy it from the publisher, tomorrow's they will send you that digital PDF file. I will, however, for your podcast listeners, make this offer. If they buy a copy of the paper book and send me a photo of themselves holding that book, if they email that to me through my website, andymangles.com, they email me a photo of them holding the book, I will send them the PDF of the full-color book as well. So they don't have to buy it directly from the publisher. They can buy it anywhere. I don't care where you buy it. If you buy it, send me a picture of you holding the book, then I'll send you that PDF. Wow, that's brilliant. And we'll definitely put the details in where the listeners can find it. <laughs> that's fantastic. Right, Thank great. you. <laughs> so moving away from um, Star Trek and your writing, I mentioned at the beginning that you're part of something called um, Women of Wonder Day. Could you tell us about that, please? Well, I have been, since I was a kid, I was raised in the uh, Latter-day Saint Church, Mormon Church, and although I'm not actively uh, religious or anything, one of the things that that instilled in me was the need to do a lot of charitable work, uh, community service work, etc. And so I've been actively involved in a lot of charitable fundraising over the years for, for many, many causes. There was this one point that a TV show from... I, I am actively known as one of the, the biggest Wonder Woman collectors in the world. And uh, it's something that people find really funny about me because I'm this this big macho guy. <laughs> and um, what viewers can't see here is that I actually have the Wonder Woman bracelets tattooed on my wrists. Oh wow, that's brilliant! <laughs> and, and as Mike is seeing in the background, yeah. there's I have a I have a six foot tall custom made statue by, from Smithsonian artists of Linda Carter in in the Wonder Woman costume. My partner, who's a tailor, um, made the costume based on patterns from the original. So I'm a, I'm a huge Wonder Woman fan. Um, so this TV show con from Canada contacted me, and they said, um, we're, we're doing a show about super collectors. We want to talk to you about Wonder Woman. You, you seem like such a kind of a dichotomy. of uh, You do all this, this very masculine butch stuff, and then at the same time you're, you're like Mr. Wonder Woman. But they said one of the elements of our show is that we like to talk about how how these collectors might use their collections to affect the, the community around them. Like they had a, a guy who was an I Love Lucy collector, but he was also a, a pastor in a church. And he would use I Love Lucy episodes in his Sunday sermons. Um, so, you know, it's kind of like here's how he used his fandom uh, on the world around them. And, you know, I mean, there's many Star Trek and Star Wars fans who go out in costume, um, you know, to events, charity events, or they visit hospitals or things like that. So they said, do you do anything like that with Wonder Woman? And I had been thinking about something in the back of my mind for years, but it hadn't quite gelled until that moment. At San Diego Comic-Con, they do a big art auction and they have all these comic book artists that will draw original pieces of art. And then they auction it off and it all goes to charity. And after 20-some years in the industry at that point, I knew 
thousands of comic book artists by first name basis and writers. And I said, you know, what if I did an, a Wonder Woman themed art auction for charity? Because as a character, what she represents um, is very different than other superheroes. Most superheroes come from a sense of loss. Uh, you know, Superman lost his planet. Batman lost his parents. Spider-Man was bitten by a spider. Then his uncle was killed and he was an orphan. And, you know, Iron Man had to create his armor to, to keep himself alive because he lost his heart. Mutants are hated. They're, all these characters come from loss. And they're fighting against something. Very few of them are fighting for something. Wonder Woman chose to come to America or to come to man's world as a representative of peace, love, understanding. Um, and she actually chose to fight for something rather than against something. When she fought villains, she was always trying to reform them. She, she wouldn't just send them to jail. She, she wouldn't threaten them she would she would try and talk to them so it was kind of a in a weird way she's a gentle superhero she's kind of like if your mother was a superhero this is what she would be like or if your sister was a superhero and that's part of what really appeals to me about the character is that she's not she she doesn't come from tragedy and she makes her own choices she's saying i choose to be this hero and I said, what, if I do a Wonder Woman-themed charity, what is the most obvious thing? And, and I thought, um, domestic violence, battered women, battered children. And, and then the more I thought about it, the more I looked at it, I said, this is the only character that could actually do this. Um, you couldn't do, like, Superman against, a Superman-themed event against domestic violence doesn't make sense. And Superman, as a charity, you know, doing a charity event with Superman, there's nothing you could you could you could do orphans, you know, space orphans, <laughs> you know, just there was nothing that really fit. No other superhero is as obvious a tie-in to a specific charity as Wonder Woman is towards domestic violence. I mean, that's just it's it was just so obvious a choice, and so. Um, I very quickly I put together this the idea of doing Wonder Woman Day, and we did this art auction. I had you know comic book artists from all over the world who created original comic book art of Wonder Woman. We auctioned it off at a, a local comic book store, and it was an immense success. And eventually, over the years, as it developed, we changed the name to Women of Wonder Day because it was kind of like okay. We've done Wonder Woman a lot. Let's spread it out to other female characters of power. And, um, you know, some artists even would contribute pieces of art that weren't superheroes. They were, you know, we had we had one artist who contributed art of, like, female rock stars. And uh, other, other people did manga heroines and so forth. But it was all kind of like women of power. And there's very specific rules for the artists where you couldn't draw them doing something sexual... You could, they needed to be family friendly. It needed to, they needed to be in a position of power, not being abused or beaten or tied up. You know, it needed to be something that was empowering. And at this point, uh, we've done seven years, and there's two other cities that have joined in on the event. Uh, we've done seven years of Wonder Woman Day or Women of Wonder Day, and it's raised over $136,000 for domestic violence charities. 
every penny of which has gone to those charities. Um, we've not taken any money, uh, even to pay for the website. Nobody, nobody takes any money from this. It all goes directly to the charities. And um, we're looking at, at how to possibly expand this in the future to have it be kind of like a free comic book day style event, to have it be something that would be all over the world. Um, you know, on this day is women of wonder day. And, you know, so we're looking at how to make that happen, but that's a lot of work. <laughs> but in the meantime, the end of every October, we've been doing women of wonder day last year. I, I had to skip in Portland because of, uh, the um some some personal issues uh, both for me and for the store we were we were going to do it on um uh with the death in the family and things like that but uh we're looking at okay how how do we bring it back in portland and then the texas store is still doing it and the new jersey store is there's they've they've kind of broadened it out to just like a hero day um but uh but we're still the, the three of us are still doing raising money for domestic violence shelters with the help of a lot of really super talented comic creators who have been donating their work. Oh, that's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And again, we'll put details about that on the website as well for the listeners. For our listeners, Andy, well, what projects are you currently working on at the moment? <laughs> I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, Don't worry, we get that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, as I alluded to earlier, I have uh, I have a comic book project that I'm waiting to hear on. I'll probably hear news this week. If it happens, it'll be announced at Comic Con, and um, you know maybe we'll do a follow up and and before you put this up on the air, and I'll I'll be like, okay, now I can talk about it. I'll tell you all about it. But in the meantime, it's something that um, if it happens, will be positively one of the coolest things that i've ever gotten to work on and you know i'm i i will i will be dancing every day wow. yeah, <laughs> because i got to work on this um i'm also uh the one project i can talk about idw is doing some x-files prose books some anthologies of x-files short stories and i will be contributing a story to the third volume of that and then uh, I'm working on a, an immense, absolutely immense book about the media of Stephen King, all his films, television series, stage adaptations, and uh, Dollar Babies, which are the movies that he allows student filmmakers to do. They only have to pay him a dollar for the rights. And those are called Dollar Babies. This will be like a thousand-page book, and I'm negotiating with a couple publishers about doing that. It'll take me several years to finish, but it'll be like the the biggest book on the biggest author that you know the world's ever known. I mean, there's 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 no author, at least in certainly not in current history, you know, who's ever been a bigger seller than Stephen King. And there's nobody in the Hollywood realm who's ever been adapted as much as Stephen King. This book will be interviews with a lot of actors, a lot of directors, a lot of behind the scenes material that fans have never seen or known about. So that's that's uh, kind of taking a lot of my work. And then I have... Writing work had kind of slowed down a little bit for me recently, and I kind of took stock of my of my life and my career, and it's just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll be hitting 50 in a couple of years. What's going to happen for the next part of my life? Where am I going? What can I do that will that will really help me 
move forward? What can I feel good about doing? Not just working at a, any old job and not just struggling to find writing jobs. What can I do? And I had started working as a care worker with a, a gentleman with Parkinson's. Uh, Lou Scheimer, who was the head of filmation prior to his death, had Parkinson's. And I worked with him a lot. And then more recently, I started working with another gentleman with Parkinson's. And he said, you know, this is what you should think about doing for for your your future. He says, you know, your personality and your abilities and your empathy um, would be really helpful to people who are in need in the future. And so I've actually uh, took about six months of training and I now work uh, as a as a care worker, home care worker, for people who are disabled or elderly. Um, and I specialize in Parkinson's and HIV and other areas. Um, and I, so I work a lot with with people who are in need, and I really try and help them to maintain their independence, maintain their dignity, be able to stay in their homes, and not have to go to a facility. And it's really been uh, really incredible to do. And I'm, I'm loving it. I'm, I'm having a great time. It's something that in the future there's going to be more need for. So anybody who has a, a really caring personality, it's, it's a, going to be a growth industry. But it's also something that, you know, I think when you're working for other people uh, to help them maintain their lives, um, there's there's a, a magic to that that really it's it's very hard to describe and I'm learning about their lives and and you know one of my clients is Greek and I says well you know if I ever get to write Wonder Woman uh, <laughs> I'm gonna be asking you questions about Greek culture you know or if I if I ever have the need of writing something and I I you know I do this I I ask you questions about Greek culture you know it's the type of thing where it, it will feed back into the energy I'm putting forward into these people's lives is also feeding back into me, making my life better. And weirdly, as soon as I stopped trying to get more writing work and as soon as I started concentrating on the, my home care work, that's when the offer started coming in from editors who were like, hey, we, like, we want you to write this. So now I'm doing both. So it's a nice place to be. I did just get to go down to California recently and was interviewed for an upcoming DVD set that is a massive, huge, three-season series that um, fans have been clamoring for for decades now to be released on video or DVD. Has never been released on video or DVD. Will be coming out this Christmas. They just recently released a trailer for it, so you can make your guesses as to what that might be. But... No, 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 no. I can't tell you <laughs> what it is. <laughs> but I was interviewed for this DVD set, and it was a fantastic time. I had a, I had a, I had a great time being interviewed for it. While I was there, I actually got to go over to Palm Springs and, and say hi to my good friend, Linda Carter. And um, so that was that was a fun week. And, you know, it was uh, um, that. So you will get to see me on DVD um around Christmas time. If you buy this big major DVD set, hopefully fans will be watching. They'll say, Holy Andy Mangles. He's on DVD. <laughs> if you can't figure it out from those clues I've given you, then, then I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's just no hope. <laughs> and for our listeners, Andy, how can, are you on social media and how can they find out more about you? 
uh, I'm sort of on social media. You know, I'm I'm one of these that I have a Twitter account, but I don't know how to use it. <laughs> um, I do I do have a website, which is andymangles.com. And if you ever misspell it, let me just tell you, it's it's like angels with an M in front of it. So it's uh, andymangles.com is my website. There's also kind of sub-websites that I maintain. There's wonderwomanmuseum.com. That's kind of a literally my Museum of Wonder Woman stuff. There's womenofwonderday.com. And there's some other things that, that I'll kind of introduce in the future when the Stephen King book becomes more of a reality and so forth. And then I am on Facebook under Andy Mangles. I, I always prefer people ask to be my friends that they at least give me some kind of clue as to why they're asking. You know, hey, I, I'm, I'm a Star Trek fan. I love your books. You know, here's my friend request, something like that. Because when I get friend requests from people who I have no idea who they are, sometimes it's like, um, okay, why? You know? <laughs> but uh, that's the best way to kind of keep up with me is either my website or on Facebook. So, Andy, I just want to really thank you for your time this evening. This has been a, a wonderful interview. I, I've really learned so much this evening about the books and things about TAS I, I didn't know, and certainly about the uh, comic series at Marvel. So thank you so much. It, it's been really uh, wonderful, and thank you for your time. Uh, thank, thank you very much, Mike. Um, I've, I've enjoyed this, and I appreciate the fact that your show is The Captain's Table, given that I've got a short story in the Captain's Table anthology and um you know i uh trek still holds very much a, a very strong part of my heart and it's it was 10 years of my life was spent working on her i mean that's longer than the actors you know i mean the act the longest show was seven seasons and um you know i worked on trek actually longer than that it was a uh, it was great to be able to kind of take part in in that universe for as long as i did i love the trek fans they they're uh, they're a great bunch of of really crazy people who know their stuff really well and i love that i love the i love when you know people come up and they're as obsessive over details as as i am it's it's a lot of fun oh no thank you thank you very much well ros that 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 was the interview as i said you know andy's amazing what what did you think I thought that was brilliant. I, I see what you mean. There, there is no such thing as a short answer. <laughs> um, but, but he was really interesting, and the stories were great. So I, you know, I can forgive him being a bit verbose. He is a writer after all. But I can't believe that IDW would turn down a comic by him and Tim Russ. That's just insane. Oh, it's crazy. I, I've got I would to have talk to it. Sarah. <laughs> oh no, and me. And and as Andy said in the interview, Titan is or was one of the most popular series. Yeah. So you never know. You never say never. And, and Andy did say never say never. And next time Sarah Gados is on the Holodeck podcast, the editor of IDW Star Trek line, I'm, I'm going to pose the question. Yeah. Well, I suppose, you know, it's written now. It's sitting there. Maybe it'll crop back up in the future. We, we can but hope. Well, exactly. That, that'd be brilliant. But, no, no, it's it just, a, as, as I keep saying, and I'm sorry, listeners, I'm, I'm raving about this interview, but I had a fabulous time. And I have to say, one of the things that I really looked up to Andy about was the Women of Wonder Day. That's just an incredible event. Yeah, such a great cause. I mean, he is, I know he's very active in the sort of campaigning and charity community. Um, and obviously, being able to raise awareness of and help to prevent 
um, domestic violence. That's just it's yeah, brilliant cause. So so much respect for the man. I I really do really have so much respect for the man. He he just has so much going on in his life, and to commit to this is, is just brilliant. For the listeners, Andy told us where you can find him, and you can find those details at visionarytrek.com. But how would the listeners find you, Ros? You can find me on Twitter at Rosalind S, that's R-O-S-L-Y-N-S, or you can drop me an email through the website Ros, R-O-Z, at visionarytrek.com. And you can find me on Twitter at mclark1701, or you can email me at mike at visionarytrek.com. Well, that's it for another show. So don't forget to turn the page for our next adventure. been listening to the captain's table 